We wanted something initially that we could live in because we had, we lived in the venue while we're building it, and really liked the idea of like that sort of B and B lifestyle, but with a bar. Welcome to a special episode of Drinks at Work from Boothby with Sam Bygrave. This one is a little bit different. It's called The List. How Jay Gray's Sago House got onto the world's 50 best bars list. And it's a new format for Drinks at Work. One I'm hoping to roll out from time to time. This one's more of a narrative piece than the conversational episodes that I usually make on Drinks at Work. It's all to answer this big question. What does it take to get a bar onto a globally recognized list of the best, like the world's 50 best bars? It's a crazy idea to think about, really. How do you begin to pull together a list of the best bars in the world anyway? How many bars are even out there across the globe? Well, I had a quick Google, and I got to the number of around 1 million, but who knows if that's accurate or not. The stats company Ibis World suggests that there are 7,298 pubs, bars, and nightclubs in Australia, and something like 67,531 in the USA. I know, they're oddly specific numbers, right? But if you drill down into that kind of grouping, the segment that makes up bars themselves, I imagine would be significantly fewer, but let's call it a million bars globally for now. So if you're making it onto the top 50 in the world, well, that I think we can agree is pretty rarefied stuff. Not many people get to do it. Jay Gray started out in bars much like most of us do. He did it while he was at uni, and he was working behind the sick to make friends. I went to law school. Uh, <laughs> I, went to, I went to law school and decided that was the best way to pay for my education, uh, which then made me drop out in my third year. Um, I just kind of like, I looked at the way everything was going with school, and I was like, I was middle of the road. Like, I was attending and I was doing stuff, but I wasn't really putting any effort in. I was having way too much fun working at like Brass Monkey, Bar 11, Coco Tang, like all these places where like Gareth Evans and that had worked and I was getting a real good education there. Also like, I wasn't like the most popular kid in school. So being able to have that sort of solid, you know, half a meter of bar front in front of you, you get that, that sort of second personality. Yeah, yeah, everyone wants to be your friend when you're serving drinks. Here's the thing, Jay might've started out like most of us do, but now he's a bartender with a bar on the world's 50 best list. And most of us don't have that on our resume. I guess that's the point. The list is exclusive. I spoke to Jay in Singapore, where you'll find his bar, Sego House, back in October last year while I was there for the world's 50 best bars, in which I do play a small role as the Academy Chair for Oceania, which basically means I help them pull together voters and give some feedback. It's an unpaid role, but they do send me to the event each year and put me up for a few nights, but they've got nothing to do with this episode and it's not sponsored by them or made in any way in association with them. Okay, now, Sago House opened in 2020, which, as you may recall, was something of an unprecedented time for the hospitality industry. Jay had just finished a run as the Monkey Shoulder brand ambassador for Southeast Asia and, together with his business partners Desiree Silva and George Abushek, was looking for a change of pace. I was done with the brand ambassador gig. I'd gotten really unhealthy. Like, I was, and naturally, as you do, uh, you're, you're drinking for a living, right? You're a professional alcoholic. You get paid to go around and, and, and rep, and maybe I did push limits of that. <laughs> like, so I, I'd, I'd, got, I'd got rather uh, out of shape. I, I'd, I'd sort of seen my mental health decline and traveling every second week. Cause I'd, I'd eight, eight countries I was looking after. So like yeah. I was spending a week, maybe two weeks in Singapore and then I was off for a week, like wow. out, out and about. So that got a lot. And Desiree and I had just started dating at that point and she was leaving Proofing Company. And I think we just kind of, initially just wanted to have something that was um, ours that we could open three days a week and that was it um, and have our friends and family hang out and live rent neutral. 
we wanted something initially that we could live in because we had, we lived in the venue while we we're building it and yeah. really liked the idea of like that sort of B and B lifestyle but with a bar. Right. Um, we realized after post opening how bad that was. <laughs> so like, what a terrible idea is to live in a bar you own. Because the idea was open three nights a week. And that was it. But live there. Yeah. Right. And and it was essentially just to live rent free or cost neutral. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like. And do something we loved, and I would have I would have found another job. I think I I want to do an interior design um, course or something like that. Uh, I wanted to ha be able to have some disposable income to live, and then have a purely creative like re-education. Sego House took over the third floor of a shop house in Singapore's old school Chinatown district. The space was cheap, it was somewhat derelict, and it was in an area that was not known for its cocktail bars. Yeah, yeah. So it was a kung fu studio and a tattoo studio and a bunch of the shit before it was ours. And I think the, the interesting thing about it was it was like derelict for so long. Yeah. 25 foot ceilings, um, big space, open space. Yeah. Um, it was also like dirt cheap. The rent was ridiculous. The space and the constraints the owners had themselves financially dictated a lot of what Sega House would come to be. We didn't have a huge budget, right? Like we, my last paycheck came in from William Grant and Sons like a month before we opened. So we were really living hands and mouth. It was, it was pretty, pretty gross for a while. Um, we, the only new stuff we built, the only stuff, only new materials we used were the ones that we thought were really pertinent to have, which is like marine ply for the bar, right? Making sure we weren't recycling the wood for that. Right. Um, but everything else, like the back bar was made out of wine crates. The rest of the back bar was made out of uh, drawers from like a, vintage chiffre robe or something that someone had given us and we couldn't fit it anywhere so we basically just took the drawers out and bolted to the wall because they looked really nice um yeah paint the paint was new we can't recycle that uh but everything else like 85 percent of the venue was was upcycled and recycled um either from other bars that had just renovated who donated stuff to us or from marina bay sands they had a huge festival uh or concert for like lady gaga or something we took all the stage pallets and raised the floor and created the soundproofing barrier from that Jay, Desiree, and George worked to build the bar themselves in the free time that they had from their day jobs for the better part of one year. Yeah, one year whilst we were still working or still gainfully employed. So yeah. it was nights and weekends for about eight months, I guess. And the rest of it was like, we actually need to finish. <laughs> the rest of it was hustle. And when it came time to open, the original plan to live in the bar and run it for a few nights each week, basically as a lifestyle supporting venture, would end up being compromised by a little thing called COVID-19. The interesting thing was like, so we were like planning the opening just after my birthday. So just after March. Um, and then no one had known what this pandemic thing was. We, yeah. we weren't we're bartenders, we weren't reading the news. We weren't really thinking about it. And then all of a sudden, like we pitch our opening date. We start telling our friends that we're gonna open up on the weekend of and lockdown, like immediately. And we don't have like an actual abode to live in. Like we're still living in the bar. Uh, we've got running water, we've got everything you need to live, but like, we're not really supposed to be living there. That's, yeah. that's the other thing. <laughs> um, and we now have no employment, uh, no insurance, because that was tied to my job, uh, no fallback. So that pushed us a little bit further to be like, we need to make this a business right now. Right. Like, it can't be as much of a passion project as we want it to be because we've got no money coming in. This is now life or death. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, we don't, yeah, we don't have an option here. Um, so we hustled up and we, I bought a canning machine and luckily things were still being delivered. So I bought a canning machine from uh, Australia, 
got delivered really quickly actually. They were, they were really awesome about it. Cause I kind of, I wrote them an email and said, listen, I'm fucked. Like, can you send me a canning machine real quick? And they, they got it over there in a week. Started doing bike deliveries um, and yeah, we just went about it and just got it done. Those efforts got them through three months of lockdown with enough cash coming in to keep the dream of the place alive. And once they opened the bar for real, their first customers came thanks to one of Singapore's best known restaurants and bars, Tippling Club and at Chef Ryan Clift. Um, and then we opened our doors and Chef Ryan from Tipping Club sent some guests over after dinner, uh, which was really sweet of him. Um, they were our first six guests and they brought another you know, 24 people over the period of time. They were in every week, uh, Deepin and, and the crew. Um, and they became regulars. And then they were like, you guys need to hire people. Because <laughs> it was just, I was in the kitchen and in the bar and Des on the floor and running service. You might be at your limits when the customers are telling you, you need to hire some more staff. You also need to not live here. It's weird. Um, so yeah, we, we, we just thought, fuck it. Well, we're not going to hunt for jobs now. The economy is in the pan. No one's going to the office. Everyone's paying rent on offices that they're not using. Yeah. So like, we're just going to have to just do this. This is where Singapore's love for eating and drinking and going out starts to play a role in the success of Sago House. And it just got busier and busier. And I think... The thing that's great about Singapore is we're the f first people to open up a cocktail bar in Chinatown, like in that actual Chinatown area. Yeah. Um, and there was nothing there. The cafe below us wasn't there for until like two years later. Helped gentrify it a little bit. <laughs> and now we're moving out. <laughs> um, yeah, so we took a big risk, but that's, that's how you get cheap rent, right? You go to an area that no one wants to be in or, or no one thinks can work. And the beautiful thing about Singapore is the Kiasu factor, right? The fear of missing out. If you put a bar in the third story shop house of middle of Chinatown, it's hard to find. Inevitably people think they're missing out if they're not knowing where it is or knowing about it. And we didn't have a marketing budget, so we didn't really have any like followers or anything like that. Yeah. So it was just all word of mouth, like, oh, I know a place. And, it, and that kind of sparked everyone being like, I don't tell my friends about your bar. I'm like, please tell them because we would like to host them. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, and it became like a really open secret. Being an insidery, in-the-know secret is all well and good for getting people into the bar in the first place, but what do you do to get them to come back? Sago House got the pricing right. In a city that's famously expensive, the drinks there, not so much. We charged appropriately for our drinks. So we knew what our rent was. We knew that we want to pass the savings on to the guests. So we were charging like $18 net, like no GST, no service charge for the first year. We didn't do any guest shifts for the first year. Our whole ethos was we show people what we can do, we show people our hospitality, and if they decide that we're worth paying more for, then when we increase the prices or we inevitably have to play GST or whatever it is, yeah. like it shouldn't be an issue, and it never has been. Yeah. We're still below market rate in terms of uh, pricing of drinks, yeah. um, because I think pricing right now is a bit mental, um, but we, the quality's there, the hospitality's there. It's that hospitality and the ability to create a feeling within people, to pull on people's memories, to tug at their heartstrings a bit, that Jay thinks got people to come back time and time again. Part of the reason people came back is because it felt homely. It was a home and all that sort of jazz. And I, everyone asks like, oh, what's, what's the nicest thing that's happened to you with Sago? And everyone presumes that everyone's thinking it's gonna be the awards. It's never that. Yeah. It's the best compliment that we've ever got. And, and it continues to happen is, oh my God, this place reminds me of insert memory here because like oh, wow. yeah like we've heard oh this reminds me of this cute little bar in barcelona or this reminds me of this cute little bar in germany or berlin whatever it is um we get new york a lot we get whatever and <clears throat> the interesting thing about that is i've never lived in berlin i've never lived in new york like 
and neither is any of us. So there was no inspiration there that would have led to that. It's just the memory or the feeling that people get and it's a relatable shared experience. The focus on hospitality at Sego House was there from the very beginning. Their elevator pitch, for instance, was more about the hospitality than it was about the drinks, despite being in an age of social media, of Instagrammable, thumb-stoppable drinks. Sego House wasn't about the drinks so much. Like the elevator pitch, I guess, was it's a merger between like just hospitality, like just pure in its purest form, and high quality service. Like we rarely ever talk about the drinks, which a lot of people focus on. It's a rotational menu. There's a lot to focus on, but yeah. like we don't think we make the best drinks in town. I don't think that's a measure of a good bar either. Yeah, like, right. yeah, our, our, our team ethos or the ethos that we keep on putting into new bartenders that join us is like, you can make someone a shit drink and they'll forgive you. Like, and they'll probably come back. But like, if you give someone a shit time, they're never coming back. And they're gonna tell people about it and they're gonna write a review about it. It took some time for Sego House to get onto that world's 50 best bars list in 2023, but there were some inklings that they were going to do well right from the get-go. The year that they opened, 2020, they ended up landing on the list for Asia's 50 best bars, right in at number 50. I really thought, for me, that was exactly where we belonged. Right. Like, I, I, like, not saying anything about the, the service, the service hasn't changed or anything like that, but when you open a venue, if you open a venue, you go straight to number four, number, like, whatever, top five. That's ridiculous. You haven't proved yourself to anyone. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter your reputation in the scene. It doesn't matter if you've been involved in the cocktail scene for forever. And, and what do you actually stand for? And what is your why? Like, there, there are only certain issues I have with all these bars opening up all the time is a lot of them don't have a why. Like, you ask, like, what, what is Sega House Elevator Pitch? Like, we have a very clear why. Some venues you can walk into and be like, this is cool. Why are you doing this? They've done pretty well for a bar that started with basically no money. They spent only $20,000, Singaporean dollars that is, to get the place open back in 2020. And because they did most of the work themselves, they saved on some costs. Having all three owners working in the business is probably key to keeping those costs down. The good thing here is the owners have complementary skill sets and it's a trio. Despite two of the owners being in a relationship, there was always a third owner to arbitrate disagreements. Like if you want your place to be successful, you're not necessarily working on the business seven days a week or in the business seven days a week, but you're always working. All three of us have a really nice role to play and it is hard, especially because different levels of appreciation, right? Like. You, you have to learn how to appreciate someone's work ethic for what they do. Yeah. You can't put a price on how Desiree makes people feel. Like, there's just no way of doing it. She's so good at it. Um, she has something about her that I can never have. I'm a nice person, I think, but, like, she's a different level of nice. Um, and, and, and caring and, and constantly thinking about you. Like, yeah, it's ridiculous. Like, you know, we're no longer in a relationship anymore, but she still texts me when it's someone's birthday. Like, she's like, don't forget, it's Nick's birthday. Like, <laughs> oh, shit, okay. Um, that kind of consideration, you, you can't teach that. That's just built into her from, yeah. Um, I, have, I have more of a workhorse mentality. Like, I'm happy to grind myself into the ground uh, and then, you know, burn out for a second and then come back. Yeah. I'm getting better at not burning out. But, um, yeah, and then George has this, this sort of bigger picture mentality. He's really good at seeing the long game and, you know, uh, on the on the financial side, you know, most of the time if we didn't have him, it'd be harder to make ends meet because he's very smart with like how we utilize our cash flow. As the business got busier, so too did Sego House need to grow. Because they built the bar themselves, there was always more work to do. And because they were also the original employees themselves working on the floor and in the bar, there was also work to do when it came to hiring staff. We do have a cultural handbook, which we've had from, the, we, we hired like 
two people originally, and then we started a cultural handbook because we thought it was really important to have our why written down quite yeah. nicely. Um, yeah. We've constantly tried to make it, because it is an old shop house, it's dusty and all that sort of stuff. We've constantly upgraded the air cons. We've, we've not changed anything about service. Product offering, service has stayed the same for four years. I think consistency is key. You change that up on people, they stop coming. Sego House is pretty interesting for the way the staff do their work there. It's a flat organizational structure, according to Jay. There's no top-down hierarchy. He jokingly calls it communist, but it evolved, he thinks, from the fact that the first people they had helping them work the venue were good friends with strong pedigrees in the bar world. They were volunteers, essentially, even though Jay says they did pay them. Initially, we had people helping out, just like friends, just being like, I'm gonna come and help. And because we knew that was a big deal for us, you know, people weren't expecting to get paid, but we paid them anyways, but it was, I guess working alongside people who are volunteering uh, at the kind of the heart changes the way you manage your team because you're more respectful. You're probably as respectful as you should be realistically as an employer yeah. um, of their time and their limitations and your patience with training them. So having a volunteer team for the first little bit before we actually hired, hired people, mm. I think changed our development processes. Like valuing the only thing that we can control is time. Like that's all we have. Valuing their time differently to how you do in a traditional or have been valued as a number or on a PL balance sheet, whatever it is. Like, you know. What does that mean? So like, in understanding that work hours can be flexible in a bar. Like start times don't have to be, you know, as if you're if you're five if you're not five minutes early you're late sort of thing. Like, we kind of disbanded all that kind of nonsense and we allowed the team to create their own set of responsibilities that meant something to them. This idea that work hours can be flexible in a bar is kind of crazy to me. It's radical even. It goes against every way that we've all been taught how to work in bars that we probably picked up from the kitchen. It sounds a little bit like, I mean, communism. Yeah, I know, it sounds so much like communism. <laughs> I need to see my Karl Marx collection. My, 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 yeah, yeah. You let them show up when they want. <laughs> um, so I think my my feelings on it, and, and I, I think Desiree shares the same uh, sentiments. Is like if you can get someone to buy into your why and your culture, and really truly invest in protecting it, then you don't need to have as many rules because they feel as much ownership of the venue as you do. If you don't buy into that, you're probably not going to get on very well at Sego. Like we've had people come and, and, and not last very long, not because they weren't up to the task. In fact, most of the people who didn't last very long were really, really like high up in the, in the hospitality scene. They just couldn't get their head around how um, close the team was, what the responsibilities were. Like they couldn't understand sometimes like why the debriefs were so long. Like our debriefs after work are, they're verbose. The key to this flat hierarchy is the debrief after every shift, something that sounds a little bit like the Festivus airing of grievances and something that has grown out of the culture at Sego House. It's, it can be sometimes it's a shouting match, sometimes it's basically, I don't want anyone coming to the venue the next day without having spoken their mind. Right. And so everyone, at, at one point, you know, we, we had six people on staff, plus uh, myself and Des working there, and having eight people speak their mind and ha allowing everyone to you know, come back with, with their, their bit on that bit. Um, you know, that, at the end of service. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, why, why do we drop dockets on 22? Like, what happened there? You know, we have three minute docket times, Edwin. Like, why, why are they not coming out? Like, are you okay? Or is something wrong? Or did you run out? Or did you not prep enough? Wow. Like, people just really lay it. Because you, also at Sego, everyone does everything. So no one just works the floor. No one just works the bar. No one just works the kitchen. Wow. It's 
communist as fuck. <laughs> um, so no, there's no excuses. You can't hide behind your skill set being like, well, they won't know what this means because I'm a bartender or whatever. Uh, they know what Docker times are and they know what your Maison Plus should have been. Um, and if you, we give you enough flexibility to, to you know, enough rope to hang yourself, so to speak. Yeah. So if you do come in late and your Maison Plus is fucked and you get a extremely busy Tuesday, you weren't expecting it, yeah. sorry about you. You can get chewed out after service by everyone. If you allow these small little grievances to, to pop up, if you allow um, people to fester their opinion about someone, I always notice when people let it out to someone else's face, they become friends again very quickly. Like I've never had someone say something to someone at briefing and they haven't been best mates the day later. Yeah. And that was kind of the point. It was like, get it out because if you sit there and don't tell them, first thing they're never gonna learn. If they're not washing their own tins after each drink or whatever it is and you're constantly doing it out of the kindness of your heart, quietly resenting them, yeah. you're gonna fucking fold. Like, you know, they're not gonna change their ways if you don't tell them. No, we, we, we don't have a hierarchical system. So, um, and to be fair, this is the only venue I've ever worked in, owned or managed that this works. Wow. I tried to have a flat management system at the other venues. They need leadership. Yeah, like wow. it, it's something about the Sega House effect where you can have autonomously, un, you know, no managers, no. Some people have different responsibilities. Yeah. Like, but we rotate that as well. Like, who's doing the ordering and who uh, for the for the week and who's not. Like, everyone learns everything. Yeah. That was the whole point of Sega was supposed to be a teaching venue. And now they teach it themselves and each other. Like, yeah. very rarely do I have to get involved with anything. Sego House eventually outgrew its first location and have moved now to what Jay says is a more grown-up space, something he refers to as Sego House 2.0. But as they've moved the bar to a new space, they've tried to keep the character of the original. Even moving the venue now, like, we're just working out, like, okay, cool, where's, where's the water station going? Where, where are we? We need everything to be real, like, Sego House-y. Because Sego House is now on those big lists of the best bars. I've always wondered about the effects that a listing like the world's 50 best bars has on a bar. Speaking of Rob Libikins last year, the owner and bartender of Caretaker's Cottage in Melbourne, and another bar that landed on the list last year, he said that the effect on trade was instant. They were busy, jam-packed the very next service after the list was announced. So I asked Jay about this as well. What effect did the list have on the Sego House business, and was that a good thing? How does he think about how things have changed from pre-list to post-list? What we saw was <clears throat> over time, our regular guests and, uh, and the people who supported us from day one did not get as much real estate in the venue as they previously had because we're a bookings only venue. We always accommodate where we can, but when it got to the, to the point where we're getting real busy, firstly, we were having guests coming in to take a photo of drinks and have a drink on a two hour reservation and then leave. Uh, which was really fucking annoying. Yeah. Um, we had an influx of tourist uh, cocktail tourism, which is not really our jam because again, we're a hospitality venue. If you want to go take a photo of a fancy venue and a, and a nice drink, there's so many venues for that. Like, and, and they're not reservation based. <laughs> like, yeah. um, you know, Sega's where you, yeah, where you create connections. There's no real point in going there to take a photo and leave. You just fuck us and you and you waste your own time. So Desiree and the team and Fix, the marketing uh, manager, created a Telegram group for our regular guests. So they had more direct line. Oh, that's yeah, so they had more direct connection to us. Um, most of the regulars now have all of our phone numbers, um, so they can kind of get to us a bit easier. But we still haven't really got a, a dead set system. Um, I think now's a good opportunity, like moving Sega House to a new location, like now's a good opportunity to invite them all back. It's toned down since 
times previous. Like I think the list used to carry a lot more cocktail tourism uh, pre-COVID. There's this idea out there that you encounter a lot that the way to get onto the world's 50 best list is to travel the world, do guest shifts in other people's bars, do the takeovers. And I've never really understood that. For one, the voting process for the world's 50 best bars doesn't allow votes for guest shifts at all. You need to have actually visited the bar. And the world's 50 best organizers do check whether or not those voters have visited the places that they say they have. So I found it interesting that initially Sago House didn't host guest shifts or takeovers and they didn't go and travel to do any of their own. Instead, they focused on what makes Sago House, Sago House. We had bartenders working with us who wanted to go on guest shifts and they wanted to host guest shifts. And Des and I were just like, no. Like for the first year, we only show people what we do. Yeah. We don't play that game. And I, I, that was probably a little bit of jadedness from my, my time being a brand ambassador and being like, You've I, seen <laughs> yeah, I've seen, seen <laughs> a fair few, you. yeah. And I couldn't see the point in it for business or anything else. I do understand why it exists. Yeah. And it needs to be, in my mind, it needs to be more the sharing of information and melding of minds. And you know, it, it should be more like a stage than a guest shift. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the problem is with such a saturated market, getting someone to come over for a week and work with your team under your brand, in aligned with theirs, it doesn't really happen. Yeah. People come over for two days, three days, they do one night work and then they go out party. Yeah. Like, sure, maybe you learn something about the Singapore culture, but you don't really learn anything about the Singapore house culture. Yeah, um, sure. So we've, we've allowed guest shifts happen now. We realize that our team valued the travel and valued the experience. And um, I, I limit myself to like a couple a year I'll, I'll do the, the, the bigger ones like New York or whatever because I want to go see the cities. Yeah. There's also this idea that you got to hire a smart PR firm to get you anywhere on one of these lists. Again, at Sego House, they managed to make the list of Asia's 50 best bars without a PR company at all. And again, that was down to financial constraints that they had. They probably would have hired one had they had the money, but it does cost real money to hire a PR firm. Today though, as Jay says, they do have PR. They use Jessica Fitzgerald, who does some work for herself and who, not coincidentally, organized this interview as well. But what exactly is it that a good PR firm can do for you and your bar? She schedules my life. Right. Like, she's, I mean, maybe this is a me thing, me and her thing, because uh, yeah. she knows how erratic I am in, in terms of, like, I'm always doing something. Um, she called me this morning to remind me that I had an interview with you. Um, <laughs> she's that kind of agent. <laughs> like, oh, okay. um, but also, like, from the perspective of we thought, well, we already have quite a lot of, like, media press out there like do we need someone to manage that the answer initially was like why and then she starts like i'll just do some, some work with you and then i saw the benefits of that i'm like oh you know how to talk to people like you know how to organize these things properly like but she she knows how to to schedule things properly and, and like she gives us a heads up especially the restaurant now like i don't know anything about restaurants realistically like i know how to run a bar i know how to run a venue i don't really know how to run a restaurant and i don't know what restaurant people like you know, when it comes to media, she does. At the ceremony for the world's 50 best bars in Singapore, in October last year, Sago House came in at number 32. They landed at number 10 on Asia's 50 best bars last year as well. They were also awarded the Mixer's Art of Hospitality Award at that event. So I think it's fair to say that 2023 was a good year. But it's also bittersweet too, because 2023 is the year that Sago House grew up and out of its original location. We lost the original site, which was, which is, you know, a lot of things happen, right? Like Des and I got divorced and uh, we lost the site at around a similar time. Honestly, I think, because we're still best friends, like Des and I and, and business partners obviously and George uh, very much so the same. Yeah. Um, I think we all kind of saw that as a closing of a chapter 
like now it's time to be a grown-up venue like which you know there's nothing wrong with og cigar house it's charming um but fuck me is it tiring fixing stuff all the time <laughs> like, and when are we going to renovate it because we were building up for renovation anyway it's like <laughs> three years of that place being busy every day of the week because it's like fuck um so now we're just moving to what I would call a grown-up site. We're maturing a little bit. We've got more space. We've got, um, you know, ceilings that aren't falling apart. But with the new location, is Jay worried that some of the original charm might be lost? We've done really well to make it look raggedy as fuck. <laughs> no, no, we've, uh, all of the things, well, we sat down and we, we sat down in the original Sega house and had drinks together when it was closed and just sat there and sort of commiserated the, the loss of the space, but also, just picked out the bits that we thought were the most important bits. Like, and honestly, we also assessed like what stuff we built out of pure necessity originally that wasn't built well, but we just kind of couldn't. Like, it was like a, a Jenga block thing where it's like, you can't remove that or that thing has to go. So having a fresh build uh, or building on top of a previous uh, venue meant that, okay, the Sega house green, we have to have our color, like that, that has to be there. Uh, what else? Okay, cool. We need to have distal monsters come back and do the mural. Um, so he's done that. Uh, the tiles that we, we, we made. Uh, we didn't have enough money to buy fancy tiles, so we bought white tiles, and then we got this girl on Etsy to design us and, and, and print a textured tile that we could stick over the white tile. Um, you know, so that saved loads of money. Yeah. Uh, so they had to be reinstated. The wine crates for the back bar had to be reinstated. And we do have Sega House windows on the way. Um, we can't, I mean, part of me really wants to rip out the, <laughs> the windows and leave the landlord windowless, but I guess we can't do that. So we've, we've, re, we've had them remade um, right. with, with some backlighting, so it's actually easier to read the menu now. Um, they're not instated yet. They'll be coming in at the, like, the end of the month. But, yeah. So everything that made Sega House, Sega House is there. And we've, we've uh, partitioned the front. So the thing I love about Sega House is you can't really see out. There's no distractions. Right. You're kind of away from it all. Um, how do you do that on a ground floor site? I guess you just partition. Partition and make it, again, reservation only. If you know, you know. And once you're in, you're in. It's a pretty impressive experience for a bar whose motto is don't try. But that's not about being lazy, as Jay explains. Yeah, so uh, you like books and stuff, uh, Charles Bukowski. So yeah, on his uh, epitaph, uh, when he passed, it just said don't try. Um, and everyone was like hounding his wife and just like posthumously trying to find out what that meant. Uh, and his, his whole thing was, you know, he didn't see any acclaim uh, as an author until way later in his life. Like, he was a boy from Germany, had a funny accent, he had very traditional parents, he was wearing like laden hosen and shit like that to school, uh, got bullied horrifically, then developed a really horrific skin condition, which is like the worst acne you've ever seen. Still never stopped writing. Uh, worked in a post office, which is his first literary thing, post office. Um, and then he saw, but he never lost his faith in writing, right? It was hard. Um, and then he wrote all these amazingly epic books, all different, right, and poems. Um, so everyone write to him and be like, hey, how do, you, how do you do that? Like, how did you make this work? And he's like, just be your most authentic self. Like, don't try. Stop trying to be me. Stop trying to be a guy on Poe. Stop trying to be anyone else but yourself, and you'll find your voice. Doesn't matter if it happens in your late 70s or your early 20s. Like, don't try. Just keep on doing what you're doing. So how does the don't try ethos apply to Sego House? Uh, exactly that, like just being our, our most genuine version of ourselves. We don't pander at all. Um, and for better or for worse, like Desiree's got a nickname called Two Star Des 
because she, <laughs> she's, she's the only person who's got us two-star reviews. <laughs> because she can give the best hospitality, but she can also, she's not gonna pander to a, like if someone's, <laughs> if someone's in there trying to be all uppity, she'd be the first to tell you get fucked. <laughs> like, so, like, whilst we give world-class world quote-unquote hospitality, uh, yeah, also two side S. <laughs> and if that's not genuine, I don't know what is. <laughs> okay, that's it for this episode of Drinks at Work, The List. I hope you liked it. I hope it explains a little bit of how Sago House got onto the world's 50 best bars list uh, and some of their initial success with the public as well. Jay is someone who clearly loves to give some good quotes. I had a great time talking to him. Please do let me know what you think of this episode and this format. My email is sam at boothby.com.au. Until next time, this has been Drinks at Work from Boothby.